The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Okay, welcome to Fearless Fabulous You. I am your host, Melanie Young, and I want to thank you for joining me. Today is November 3rd, 2021. Uh, November is uh, a, a significant month for a lot of reasons. It's, it's a little hard for me because I lost my father on November 2, 2009, so I always have to get over what I call the November 2 hump. And my husband, David, lost his father on November 13th, 2003. So it's always an um, auspicious month. We always kind of take a deep breath as we go into it and end it by giving lots of thanks that we got through it. November is also National Family Caregivers Month. And uh, we are going to address today's show for this topic. Uh, and for many reasons, um, many of my friends and peers have now become caregivers to an elderly parent. We're all of that age, and I have very recently entered the tribe of caregivers, uh, which presents me in a very personal state of discussing this today, but I'm excited to be doing it with someone that also uh, found herself in the role of personal caregiver. Um, I've addressed this topic many times, and I have addressed it and written about it many times from the perspective of talking to psychologists and caregiver organizations about the state of caregiving. And I address it in detail in my book, Getting Things Off My Chest, A Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer, when I talk about caregiving a loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer. There are many types of caregiving needs from caring for a loved one with a debilitating illness to uh, caring for an elderly parent. Um, so this show is for all of you. According to the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers, more than 53 million Americans provide care for adults and children who cannot care for themselves in the form of unpaid health or supportive care for someone they love. It could be an aging parent, a family member, or a child with a disability, or a spouse, partner, or friend with an illness. I think everybody has been impacted by this. Uh, interestingly, um, only a few states, and there are some, do offer uh, pay for family caregivers, um, but there are um, loopholes in that and, and certain things. I don't actually qualify, I learned, even though Tennessee, where I am, uh, does provide paid caregiver. I, as the legal power of attorney, cannot be paid because I am legal power of attorney, I learned. My other domicile state, New York, also offers family paid caregiving, but not all states do. Uh, something we'll address. My guest today found herself in the role of the sudden caregiver when her husband was diagnosed with a terminal cancer. Uh, her name is Karen Warner Schuler. She uh, has written a wonderful book called The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient 
caregiving. And I invited her on to discuss caregiving from the perspective of being a caregiver with the goal to help anyone listening to the show who is in the sudden caregiving role. And often it is sudden, even though some people know it's coming as I did, it still hits you between the eyes and throws you into an otherworldly state. So hopefully by listening to this show, we can help you better shoulder the responsibilities for caregiving while caretaking for yourself. So I'd like to welcome to Fearless Fabulous You, Karen Warner Schuler. Welcome. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, I also want to say I'm so sorry for the losses that you face every November. That's really tough. And um, my condolences. Well, I appreciate that. You know, so my mother had surgery, uh, skin cancer surgery last week, and it was the first that she'd had of any surgery, general and under general anesthesia. And we all took a deep breath that she would get past November two, <laughs> yeah, and we could get through that, and we did. And she's being feisty right now, but I empathize with you and all my fellow caregivers. And it's interesting, Karen. I posted on Facebook today the question, and I'm going to ask you this starting out of the gate, is it caregiving or caretaking and what is the difference? Oh, that's a really good question. I call it caregiving. Uh, I'm not sure there's a significant difference. People use those words interchangeably. The world that I inhabited was the world of giving care, um, but you could also say you're taking care of someone. I think the role of caregivers, as you described it by the Rosalind Carter Center, is definitely giving care. And this is, as you pointed out, National Care Family Caregivers Month. And when we talk about family caregivers, we're talking about those uncompensated, right? We don't get paid for it. Uh, we are, it is a full-time job, in spite of the fact that we may already have a full-time job. Usually women are the caregivers. So I feel like with the 53 million caregivers that we have, it is really, uh, we are giving care. Well, most of the people who responded to my question, which was rhetoric, it wasn't intended to be personal, said that it is caregiving. One person said, having been there myself, most everybody responded had, I can truly say it is caregiving to the person and caretaking of yourself what you must do in Ooh. order to endure the stress of caregiving. And I, I actually addressed that in my book because uh, often when you're busy caregiving, you're not caretaking of yourself, which we're going to get into. But first, Karen, I'd like for you to share your personal story of how you became the sudden caregiver. What was going on in your life at the time and how long ago was it? Uh, well, in 2014, I was on a business trip. My late husband and I were both consultants. We had our own businesses, and we were those people that had, you know, we, we had raised our kids. The family was launched. Everything. We just got to that point in our lives where we could kind of kick back a little and do the travel and enjoy life the way we wanted. And uh, he gave me a call. It was I was on the road doing a business uh, thing, and I had gone to bed and. He called me out of the blue and said, I'm at the ER and I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. We had no idea that was coming. My, my late husband was one of the healthiest people, almost annoyingly so, like he took supplements and 
worked out six days a week at the gym, and he was very focused on his health and um, and bal- work-life balance. And so the irony is that he got this diagnosis that we did not see coming. He did have a bad back across the summer. He was complaining increasingly of some pain in his back, but we just thought it was a bad back. And when he finally went to the ER to get an MRI for his bad back, they kept him and they did some tests. And that's when I got the call. So really his only symptom was a bad back? And what kind of cancer was was it? It it was lung cancer, actually. So how many people asked if he smoked? Never smoked. Isn't that crazy? But if it's like, as soon as you say lung cancer, somebody goes, "Did was he a smoker?" It's it, like my mother has skin cancer. Did she lay out in the sun? It's yeah, like immediate. It is, yeah, Melanie, you're so right. I mean, it's it's almost why I don't lead with that because there's an assumption that we bring it on ourselves. And you know, I think a lot about health these days, as you point out. You know, we're all mm-hmm. facing aging parents or our own health crises, and. I think about, am I healthy because I'm smart or am I healthy because I'm lucky? And um, I think, you know, luck has a, a lot to do with it. My husband did not do anything to bring lung cancer upon himself. I think that's important for everyone listening that just don't jump to conclusions because somebody has a, a cancer diagnosis it's because they smoked, they sat out in the sun too long, they drank too much, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So um, at what point did you find yourself in the role of full-time caregiver? Well, when the diagnosis happened, life as we knew it was over. And I, I will be honest, and this may be true for caregivers out there, I could not take it in. I could not take the enormity of it in all at once. And so what I did was, at first, when he gave, he called me, I immediately got out of bed, got on a plane, went back to Boston, where we were living, walked into the hospital room, and I was just one of those, like, you know, I'm I'm an executive coach for a living, so I'm going to take charge here, I'm going to resolve this, it clearly is not lung cancer, it clearly is not stage four, this is a big mistake, and that's that, you know, one of the challenges that I faced as a caregiver throughout my whole experience was just always running a little bit behind the reality of what was going on. So in a way, it's denial, but in a way, it allowed me to regroup, step back and say, okay, what's really required here? But that was the moment. And uh, as I say, I had my own company, my husband had his own company. So right away, you have to think about what does this mean for our sources of income? This is These are the issues that, that visit every caregiver, because e- even though I had my own company and I, could, I didn't have a boss, I had to ask for time off. I had people that expected me to be places around the world, and I was no longer going to be able to do that. So there's quite a bit of renegotiation that happens. And in my book, I call that, I created a roadmap that spells the acronym CARE, C-A-R-E. And the C stands for crisis, because immediately we were immersed in this crisis. And we we had to figure out all those things that go, and some of them are incredibly pragmatic and seem beside the point, like you know, how do I get out of this client engagement I have? And and yet that's all part of life and we have to renegotiate it. I think I think it, um, 
honesty is the only way to do it. I mean, I had to push back an article deadline and my editor was great about it. You know, once you say this is why and you give people enough time. Now, obviously, traveling the world, it's a lot harder when you have global clients or uh, in the case of I had I was producing events for many years. And I remember being called literally. Karen, I was called, I was in Chicago and I got the call. My father was going into the hospital for quintuple bypass surgery about 30 minutes before my event was starting. Wow. And his attitude was the show must go on. And I got to tell you, when he did die, uh, I had just had my second cancer treatment. I mean, I'd had more lymph nodes removed from my breast cancer and I was still um, wearing um, drains. And I basically said to my mother, you just got to put off the funeral because I'm not going to risk my health to get on a plane because he's Jewish and has to be buried in 24 hours. <laughs> right. And and she did yeah. it. I mean, you know, you can't just jump at everything. I mean, you know, uh, and, and if you're halfway around the world, you know, you can't just it's, it's hard. But and I, I think it's important to note that, that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you, when, you know, when, when it's different when somebody's ill. But when somebody dies and you're halfway around the world, it, it does. Things don't have to go quickly. <laughs> Get, <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> don't drop everything. I mean, they're dead and, and the funeral can happen. But don't go, make yourself crazy. Uh, unfortunately, your husband did pass away. And I'm really sorry. Um, how long was it from diagnosis to his passing? Thank you. It was uh, 18 months from the diagnosis wow. till the time he died. But we really, I mean, this is part of what I, you know, my my mission, which is to change the caregiver story, which is we really took an optimistic view of things. And when he was, on the day he was diagnosed, a doctor sat me, an oncologist sat me down and said, you know, he's, you're not going to have your husband a year from now. And I, you know, after you get the shock of that wears off, I started saying, well, you know, when you look at the bell curve of everyone who has this disease, there are people who die within the, sec the first six months and the first 12 months, but there are this tiny little bit of people out in that outlier vicinity, about 5% who live five years or more. So we looked at the bell curve and we just said, okay, we're going to beat the curve. We're just going to get out there and we're going to lead the curve. And our logic for that, which is part of getting an optimistic narrative, which is the big challenge of caregivers to how to stay positive, but it wasn't just Pollyanna, fake positive. We were saying, well, look, he, look how healthy he was. He got this diagnosis. He's, he, he isn't just lumped in with everybody on the planet who might be represented in this data. Um, we felt like he might have an edge. And then the other piece of it was that we were hoping that he would, we would avail ourselves of the best treatment we could get. We did a lot of research about it. We felt very fortunate to be treated the, where we were in Boston. And then our thing was, we're going to get, we're going to get as much treatment. He's going to if it, if it kicks in and works, it buys us more time. And if that kicks in and works, it buys us more time. And um, this is a, we're living in a world where breakthroughs are happening every day. So that was our hope. Um, but in the end, we, we uh, he basically took a turn. He was pretty n as normal as possible, which is the A in my roadmap, until about three months before um, he passed away. Oh. 
You talk about something interesting in uh, the Sudden Caregiver that I highlighted about care receivers and the definition of care receivers. And you said something, who is the, who is the person you're caring for, you're giving and they're receiving. And I think this is important because, um, sadly, another friend of mine on Facebook posted today, and she was in anguish, that a friend of hers, probably elderly, fell and said he only broke a few ribs or something. It was nothing, really. And she begged him to go to the doctor and blah, blah, blah. Short, Long story short, he died. And you say here, and I'm seeing it personally now, caregivers tend to inflate their abilities, concealing the extent of their illness for fear of being marginalized and stigmatized, or in some cases, they just don't want to deal with it. And at the same time, caregivers tend to publicly downplay and understate the demands of care to support the caregiver's identity and continued independence. Uh, Two big issues there. One is the downplaying, and two, the desire to maintain independence. Because many care receivers, including your husband and my mother, want to remain independent, and therefore they tend to downplay their needs. Let's talk about that. Yes. So that is a dilemma. And Mm -hmm. I think there's actually a name for it, the caregiver's dilemma, Mm -hmm. because in, I will say every caregiver, care receiver situation is unique. And in my book, I call it the circle of agency. You, You have a pie, you divide it in half, caregiver does one half, care receiver does the other half. And over time, that agency transfers gradually, in my case, gradually, some people not so gradual, to the caregiver. And so something as simple as my late husband drove everywhere. He was the driver. I was the narrator, na- uh, navigator. But if we went out to hop in the car and drive into Boston for dinner, he was driving. And that was important to him, as it is for aging people. That's one of the worst things is when they have to give up the keys to the car. And so that was his thing. And when it it became clear to me that he could no longer do that, I had to assume that agency. But care receivers, anyone in this day and age who is ill for any reason wants to publicly manage that and control that. And I do think it's true that my you were talking earlier about being in the middle of you know producing and getting and editing and meeting a deadline. My late husband was in the hospital diagnosed with stage four cancer. He was the editor of a magazine that he was the founding editor of a magazine called um, Briefings on Leadership. And the first thing he said to me was, "I I'm on deadline. I have to get." the issue out. And I, to me, I was like, well, you've just, let me just call them and tell them. And he just said, no, because I, and this is the thing you don't, we had no idea how much time he had and how long he would edit that magazine. And he edited that magazine for almost, you know, right up to the time that he could no longer write about three months before he passed away. He was still doing that editing and meeting those deadlines with help. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother had somebody over here yesterday helping her write her deadlines because she has such arthritic hands. So, yeah, they do want to feel they're still involved. But but you also, as a caregiver, have to realize when it's it's a stall tactic. And I'll give you I'll give you a very good example. And then you tell me. So when they don't want to go to the doctor. Yes. I'm dealing with that right now. Um, you know, 
attempting to cancel doctor's appointments while making hair and nail appointments instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing with that today, actually. Um, attempting every, I'm not sick, I don't feel well, I don't want to get out of bed, I have a temperature, every, I, I, I don't like this color dress. This was, that was Monday. I don't like this sweater. I don't feel like going. We had to like, you know, drag my mother into a car. How do you deal with that when they also say, don't you dare talk to me in that tone of voice and don't tell me I have to do something. And, you know, uh, you also talk about that. You talk about a, a, a woman in there who had a, a Masters of the Universe father and he got he let out his aggression on her. And I think that's important because a lot of times it can get a passive aggressive relationship where they don't want to go to the doctor. They don't feel good. And they'll make up every possible excuse in the book not to do something how do you role play that where so it doesn't become a you know a, a, a an argument every time you're trying to get this person to do something well it in my book i call it assuming the position mm -hmm. and that was one of the biggest challenges for me is realizing no one else is in charge and I feel, and I advise caregivers to, to assume it right away. And so Stephanie, who's the caregiver's story in the book, whose father was this, you know, high powered lawyer. And, um, and he did not want to accept his illness, which is not uncommon, but it does follow the kind of seven stages of grief, right? There's acceptance eventually, and what I say is, I use the analogy or, or the metaphor of a, a quarterback, which I know not everyone loves American football, but I do. And um, and it is the position on the field, just as it is for caregivers, where every decision during chaos, not when you're standing on the sidelines looking at the playbook, <laughs> but when you're on the field and you've got to figure out where people are and how to get that pass, how to get those, you know, that extra, that next down, um, it's up to the quarterback. And so if you if you are the caregiver, you probably are the quarterback and you can act like you're not or be proactive and seize that. And you I was lucky. My husband turned to me and said, you're in charge. Like, I don't tr I trust you more than I trust anyone to get me through this. And we have that relationship. But I was very aware writing my book. And when I started talking to other caregivers that you know, some of these relationships are fraught. And at the same time, you have to navigate it with the, what is the well-being of the person in your care? And so the other thing after assuming the position is to have a serious, very difficult conversation with that person and say, these are the things that are likely to cause us issues. These are the, the things you may object to. Talk about them when they're not in, um, in, you're not in crisis and you're not angry and upset. And if you can just step back and say, I'm going to make these calls, not for my own good, but for yours. The caregiver does have to understand the difference between what they think should happen and what the care receiver wants. So for example, my husband did not want to tell anyone how sick he was. Right. And yet I could see in some business circumstances that if he would only reveal some part of it, it would go easier for him. But I couldn't just call up the phone and call, pick up the phone and call his business associates and tell them that because his wishes were explicit to me. Please don't discuss this without me being involved. So um, 
I think that there's no easy answer. I don't have the magic button to flip, but I do think over time, the care receiver begins to accept the circumstance and begins to understand you are standing between them and chaos and trust a little bit that you can do it. And it can take time. You talk about creating your care leading squad, your circle, and I talk right about it in my book um, about your board of directors when you are chief executive of your health. But with a caregiver, you talk about um, a number of people. The first one I'm going to address because I think it's really important, be self-centered. Yes. Okay. Um, no one gets a place on your team unless you trust them implicitly. And, and, and you need to make sure that you have the most confidence in yourself. I also believe self-centered also means take time for yourself yes. and say enough. Um, I'm take, I'm going, you know, my husband and I already have a scheduled trip to Hawaii. We're going, we're going to find health, health, health care. And I've already said, this is our time. We need it. You can't just suddenly drop everything and let your health as the caregiver falter. That happened um, to my grandmother, by the way. I, you know, Karen, she was caring for my dying grandfather and did not take care of herself and ended up having a massive heart attack and predeceased him. And that impacted me for the rest of my life. Uh, so I, uh, besides Anais Nin's The Virtue of Selfishness book, so I'm a big <laughs> believer in saying, you know, I, I love you and you're totally awesome and I'm here for you, but I have to have time for me. Yes. And protect my health. And I think everyone has to get over the guilt factor about that. How, how are you with that, Karen? Well, Melanie, that is, I think, a really quintessential issue for caregivers because most caregivers are women and because women mm -hmm. tend toward one self-sufficiency syndrome, like I got it, I got it, I got it, and I don't need help. And the other, and also difficulty asking for help. And that's why I put that care leading squad in there because, you know, people who search for jobs are advised to put, like you call it, a board of directors. You know, who's mm -hmm. going to edit your resume for you? Who's going to help you prepare for your interview? And that's the world I'm in. I'm an executive coach. So I started thinking, well, I need that squad for me. And um, there, I do think if you're not careful, you make a decision to say, well, this person wants to be helpful, even though you secretly know they won't be, right? They, You know that they're going to be more work, not less work. And so that's why I say be selfish, because when you create your care leading squad, you don't have to have everybody in it. They can have a job, but it doesn't have to be the job of supporting you. And so the care leading squad is identify those things can't do, you don't want to do, you could really use some help on, and then look around you proactively, assign roles to people you know and trust um, versus waiting till someone comes along and says, hey, I want to do something, what can I do for you? Which is pretty much the worst question to ask a caregiver when you're trying to help oh, them. Oh, I know. <laughs> they, they, it would just give them one more thing to come up with. It's much better to tell a caregiver I'm going to do this for you. 
Exactly. And and a couple of them that I think are important that I'm actually putting together right now. The numbers person. This is so critical because this individual that you love and care for may have been responsible for his or her uh, finances and really is not capable of it, despite sometimes thinking that he or she still is. And as a result, bills don't get paid due to hospitalizations and late fees kick in or bills are double paid or you know, yeah. again, I'm seeing it from a personal standpoint, or finances may not be as good as they should have been mm. because that person was slipping for a while. This is particularly in the case of some elderly people who have, you know, onsets of dementia. Maybe, you know, finances are going and a big one. You got to watch out for the people who come in and take advantage of that. And that's where you got to have a really strong numbers person who you talk to who enjoys crunching numbers and says, I want to take charge of this person's finances, whether they like it or not, and with their consent to make sure that money is not being wasted or this individual is not being taken advantage of, right? Yeah, it's so true. And there's a lot of things that analytical friend can do that Mm -hmm. are, for me, they're just not things that I do naturally. But in our case, my late husband did pay all the bills. We all had, we had everything set up on bill pay. We had the finances all worked out and then the money just came out. And then one day I got a call. This was maybe five months before he passed away. So I was, he was still fine and, you know, interactive and working. And I got a call from the bank saying, we didn't get your mortgage check this month. And I, it had never happened that we didn't pay, especially my late husband, because he was so meticulous. And so I, um, I call, you know, I, I said, that can't be true. And, and I looked into it and I realized that was really the first sign that my husband wasn't really managing the details as well right. anymore. Um, but you have to look for those signs and see them for what they are. And it took me a little while, but that, so my, you know, that person who, took over my numbers was enormously helpful, not just what during the caregiving, but after caregiving, when you have to work out all the, oh my goodness, the complicated, as you know, the estate issues, and you're in a state of, you, you, I was in a fog of grief and trying to figure out, trying to answer really, you know, specific numbers questions that seem so beside the point to me. I think that's really important. And, um, you know, the other interesting thing is, you know, durable power of attorney is critical when you when you try to contact your loved ones, credit card companies or banks, you know, you've got to extract not only if they're doing if they're doing online banking and online payments, what the codes are to access anything. And if they're not, God help you, because then they're just using a ledger. Um, but, the, you know, you can't do anything without durable power of attorney. Um, and I must have called every credit card company. And only one accepted an online email. The mm-hmm. rest in insurance, the rest, it's a 30-day wait. So this is a process that can take time. Meanwhile, you know, money could be going out the door and, and service charges adding up. And as you said, you didn't know, you know, often it blindsides the individual. So that is something to really try to get on top of with someone you trust. Um, you also talk about um, the food fairy. Um, if if you're not into cooking, you know, making sure that this individual who normally does not want to eat and has a very particular palate, often changing eats, uh, we have my mother on. We, we did this prior to COVID when she became housebound. Uh, we have her on a meal kit 
delivery that she picked out. I researched it carefully. I, I knew exactly what her issues were. She doesn't like food touching this and that. <laughs> and she orders it every week and it's been a godsend. Yeah. I mean, a godsend. And, and you know, it's reliable. And I highly recommend that if you don't have the time or wherewithal to cook, because a lot of people think they can bring over food and they bring over cake. Yes. Um, and, and another, so uh, related to saying yes to food, I love the food kit idea, by the way, they were not as prevalent during, uh, my caregiving, but I use food kits now and why I love them. And this is really good for caregivers is they're healthy. Like mm -hmm. they're healthy and they save money. You I, I, it would have saved me standing in the grocery store, looking around going, what on earth am I going to pull together out of this, you know, plethora of choices for this one dinner that may or may not get consumed. Uh, but I was really fortunate. And this is, this is an example of one thing I think caregivers are not very good at is saying yes to help that's offered. And I have uh, some of my clients happen to be food related, you know, food managers and mm -hmm. um, good cooks. And early on, my friend called and said, I, I really want to stock your I want to bring you food. And I said, no. And the reason was I thought I'd have to then entertain. And that mm -hmm. isn't at all what she intended. And she offered many times over the course of this 14 months, 18 months. But Eventually, she just called me and said, unlock your back door. I'm in your driveway and I'm putting I'm here to put food in your freezer. She took me out of the middle and that was easy for me to say yes to. And she and her husband would cook us wonderful meals and put them in the freezer. And that was um, you know, just amazing, especially when you have so many other things to focus on and decisions to make. So if someone offers you food really specifically say yes to it and 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 be honest if it's certain types of food that you prefer or want so it's not just cake because that's yeah. really all that seems to be coming the other is the handyman and i'm going to expand on that the handyman knows their way about a toolbox which is really important when you start as you say in and the sudden caregiver installing ramps and grips so your loved one doesn't fall we're in that process right now which has been interesting because just trying to find a way to get my mother into the shower comfortably when she can't turn on a faucet and is scared to be underwater in the, you know, she's scared of falling. We, we've gone through a couple of grips and a handyman that truly understands what's going to work and knows how to install it is vital. Also in that same uh, vein, neighbors, uh, neighbors who can help take out the garbage, who can check in on your person when you're not there, who can get them out of the house and they've locked themselves in, which has been my case. Mm -hmm. uh, neighbors are wonderful people and don't feel you're taking advantage. Most are happy to come over and check in. Um, so try to establish a relationship with neighbors. Uh, it really, it is a circle of community and friends um, who, you know, really do want to help. I, I do find one of the biggest challenges is, uh, and you probably experience this, the people who just, they want to be kept up to date all the time. Yeah. And what's new and what's, re oh, this is my, what's really going on? Yeah. What's the real story? 
I think yeah. I've, I've been asked that so many. I was like, the real story is we're going to the doctor to find out the real story. Stop asking me what the real story is. Uh, I know there's care, you know, caring bridge and all that. I'm not, I mean, my, I, I find caring bridge is good when somebody's already in treatment or in the process of something when it's an elderly person and a parent, you know, you don't need to go on day in and day out about, you know, did they poop or not? I mean, nobody right. wants to know, <laughs> you know, and that's really what you're dealing with with an elderly parent. Are they going to get in the shower? Are they going to eat? Are they going to poop correctly? Uh, you know, are they going to bathe? That's a big one. Nobody wants to know that. But I, I have learned just to simply, um, my way is just to come up with a form text response saying, you know, what she's resting, she's resting quietly. Please, no phone calls, right? Or yeah. she's resting quite not ready to see people, or she's ready to see people one guest, one person a day. But make it just short, and you don't need to go into long dissertations with people. And people should not ask you to. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yes, I I do agree. I think that communication is a uh, is a huge challenge. It certainly yes. was for me because I was in her inner circle. And so in my book, I talk about having a communication strategy where you draw three concentric circles and the people in the middle are the need to know people it might be right. you and your siblings taking care of your mother. Um, and then there's a ring out, which are people who kind of know some friends, maybe your care leading squad, but they don't, they don't have to have every single detail. And then the farthest ring out will be the people that you work with or my clients or his clients where they needed to know something in order for them to do what they needed to do. But you didn't have to go into a lot of detail. And um, and that I found just prioritizing the communication that way and then how you communicate and what you communicate. First of all, what you communicate is does have to be agreed on by you and the care receiver and then how you communicate we my my husband's mother right now is you know she's in assisted living and she's healthy and she's vibrant and we have a whatsapp or i guess it's just text that every there's a group text and everybody gets the updates of mm -hmm. who can visit when and it's very helpful and you don't have to respond or interact so that's something just on status quo like this is what's happening as life unfolds. But I also found as my husband was really in serious medical situations, like he might've had surgery mm -hmm. or he might be in the hospital for a series of tests. The best advice I got, which I will pass on is take yourself out of the middle because mm -hmm. this is a time when people can say you're withholding information. You're not telling right. me everything. He couldn't have been in the hospital for a full week and there is no answer. And yet that's the case. So what we ended up doing was saying to our doctor, and I was surprised how readily available this had always been, when we come in for our follow-up visit, can we do a conference call with the family? Hmm. And I had a free conference call number that you can easily get, just Google that. And I I sent it out to the family and they all, if they wanted to, they would we would all call in at a specified time and we text and say, okay, we're getting on. And then we'd get on. And they were able to ask the oncologist or the surgeon exactly all their questions firsthand and get firsthand answers. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like I was screening the information. 
That's a great point for for people who are open to that. I'm I'm in the South. Everybody wants a person. It, it's just the, yeah. the the norms here. Or what can I bring? What can I really bring? You must need something. What you know? It's like yeah. Don't bring anything. I don't need anything. Uh, what did you feel was lacking, and what resources were helpful in your well, experience? Well, yeah. So the you being a caregiver, being a sudden caregiver, I had never been a caregiver before, and that probably is true of of a large percentage of those 53 million caregivers in the United States. So what, so we don't know what resources are available. It's not like this is a job you've done for 20 years and you just know you go to the closet and pull out what you need. Uh, so I found that I spent more money out of pocket than I needed to do until mm -hmm. I realized that my community offered resources. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things is, that there are resources associated with your hospital, like your local hospital, even if even if treatment isn't happening there, there are social workers, there are caregiver support groups, there are you know specific disease like cancer support groups for mm -hmm. the patient. And I found those to be incredibly helpful. There were also in my community free resources. So my husband had uh, he had had surgery and a visiting nurse came, and, and I said, well, I'm going to run out and get a walker because I think he needs a walker for a while. And she said, why are you buying that? Just go to Council on Aging, which is they're in communities all over the U.S. And they give it they give it to you that you can check it out. And when you're done with it, you can return it, which makes so much sense. Oh, does it ever? I have two walkers from my grandfather and my father. They're sitting in the garage. I'm like, why are they walkers still there? Right. So and it's, point. It's, Medicare also covers a lot of things too. You should, if, if the person is on Medicare, it's important to immediately call and say, what is, what resources are available to me? Yeah. Medicare is, I have to say was amazing for us during this time. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. And the care leading squad, of course, Mm -hmm. And just really understanding that there are sources of, there are resources. So on my website, suddencaregiver.com, thesuddencaregiver.com, I have a resources tab and I have about 40 different organizations that just links to organizations that can be helpful, depending like if you're dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's, there are links mm -hmm. for that or cancer or heart disease, um, and so those are places to, to start. And all of them are deep wells. <laughs> so you can go there and looking for one answer and you may find sources, resources that you just didn't know existed. I think it's terrific. I, I've referred to caregivers.com myself um, when I've been doing research, um, but there, you know, a lot of it's community driven because a lot of the help you need is within the community, like looking for home health care. Yeah, uh, which I'm in the process of doing now and understanding what is and is not covered because again, this these can run up incredible expenses, and so that's yeah. the scary part. Um, understanding your long if your loved one has a long term care policy or disability, when do those kick in? Um, yes. You know, I, I learned long term care doesn't kick in for a hundred days. So what do you do before that? And when does a hundred days start? At what point? Uh, you really have to be on top of that. And it is it is a lot. So finding good caregiver support groups, not those, you know, there's some good caregiver support groups and there's some where everybody's just com a complaint fest. And I say that 
having gone through breast cancer and ending yeah. to see this. You've got to be careful um, so you don't get lost in the pity party part of it, um, particularly if, if the goal is to get information quickly. And you're yes. right. A lot of this you don't have to pay for because it can get very expensive. Um, first, your lost time working. And second, the, the, the constant driving to and from. Um, there's a lot of lost time in there. Oh <laughs> the my driving gosh. to and from doctor's appointments, the waiting. Um, this is a great time to get books to read or really master social media. Um, yes. You know, think it, it get your social media done. Um, if, uh, I also find and I'm in the process of researching this now is learning what gadgets are out there to make life better, such as instead of becoming the chief channel changer for your person who can't use their hands and who is, can't hear, find voice-activated computers, voice-activated um, devices to turn lights on, to answer the phone, to, to dial the numbers that you're constantly asked what the phone number is 500 times, to... Um, turn the TV on and off so it's not going and blaring at three in the morning. We're in the process of researching that now. There are a lot of uh, devices out there, but that's something to think about so that they feel autonomous and you're not constantly having to get up in the middle of the night to turn off a TV or stop everything because they suddenly need their phone number now. Yes. The doctor they've called a hundred times. That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> Alexa. I know we're working on Alexa right now to try yeah. to get them to master that. But but my mother being a writer and your husband being a writer, one of the problems is she can't write. So we're trying, she's dictating to someone now, but we're looking into that whole voice activated and it's a process. So yeah. when I get information, I'll be happy to share it with you um, as well, because these are things you just kind of learn as you go. Yeah, I mean, it, we're really lucky we live in this day and age where these things are are becoming more and more accessible and prevalent. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing you're reminding me of, I have a colleague who realized I was, he put something on Facebook and, and answered a question I asked. And he said, um, one thing that he found is he was constantly getting a call from his parents who are elderly and having to get in his car and drive to their house and fix something on their computer. Yeah. And he said he researched and found software he could put on their computer and on his. And when they had a problem, he could dial in from his own home to their computer, fix the problem, see what they were talking about, and then help them that way rather than driving across town and trying to do that. So if, if, you, ha if you have some distance from the person in your care, especially elderly people, that's where we find it's it's impossible to describe. Look on the bottom of your screen. You'll see a little camera. It has a red line in it. Click on that red line, and you'll be able to see me. They, you know, they just don't understand. No, it's it's incredible. And and you know, um, if they need to get somewhere, you know, programming, uh, Lyft or Uber to pick them up if they're comfortable with that many or not. Yeah. Um, but getting drivers, you know, the driving is a huge issue the driving because yes. the time you take to drive someone's appointment to get them out of the drive and back that's a whole day okay yes. that's your day and you've just lost a day of work so getting people to drive for you 
if people are retired or they're not working or maybe they work part-time, but try to get that schedule. Delivery services for food are great. Um, we had a, a dog until it died here, um, which is a whole nother trauma. Um, and we had the food delivered, the groomer came. So mm-hmm. we found as many mobile services as possible to continue life as normal without my mother getting out because she can no longer drive anyway. So, you know, researching all that mobility and, and voice activated is a great source. And I still think there's more software to be de- you know, developed. There's a terrific opportunity to do more for companies willing to take this on, but it will make a big difference. Um, we've come to the end of the show. I, I want to just, again, thank you. And, and again, to my listeners, I've been talking to Karen Warner Schuler of this author of the sudden caregiver, a roadmap for resilient caregiving. You can learn more about her and her story, the book, and some great resources at www.thesuddencaregiver.com. I want to thank you for joining me uh, for National Caregivers Month. It is a 365-day experience for those who are in the caregiving role. My heart goes out to every single one of you in it. And my heart goes out to you um, for all you did to help your husband through his transition. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much for doing this work and having this conversation, especially this month where we have to see and thank the caregivers around us. Yes, they are angels and they are never thanked enough. So thank you to all the caregivers in the world. You've been listening to another edition of Fearless Fabulous You. You can hear all my shows anytime, anywhere after the live airing on iHeart, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform and at melanieyoung.com. Thank you. And as always, my message is stay fearless and fabulous. Have a great day. Tuscany, New York, Chattanooga, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Provence, and Bordeaux. These places come to mind when people ask me about my breast cancer experience. I own a wine and food marketing and special events business and work with many international clients. So one of the pleasures and perks of my profession is the opportunity to travel to beautiful places to learn and taste. During 2009 and 2010, I took an extended and unexpected journey to a destination that had been visited by many before me. It was my first, and I hope last, visit to Cancerland. I always receive the best advice about traveling to a destination from people who have been there before me. So I've decided to share my advice to you on your journey to Cancerland, including tips on how to prepare, organize, and navigate. It's an adventure trip of sorts that includes a huge adrenaline rush, lots of endurance tests, many highs and lows, bumpy rides, and a few bouts of emotion sickness, and I hope smoother sailing with a great companion and a skilled medical captain to guide you. You can hang on for dear life, or you can gear up and prep yourself to ride it out and definitely navigate the obstacles. My hope is that when you reflect on your journey, you can say, been there, done that, and I'm not going back. I'm moving on to the next adventure, and I'm choosing my this time. 